performerstuff.com presents In the Holding Room with Christian Abbott. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining me in the holding room. I'm Christian Abbott. We have an amazing episode planned for you because this is the place to come before you head into that audition room. On today's episode, we have the incredible Kim Criswell. Broadway powerhouse is going to be telling her stories about some of the auditions she's been to. In my Thank You Five segment, I'm going to be teaching you how to memorize a deck of cards and why doing this could make you a better performer. In our professor's corner, three-time Olivier Award winner, Tony-nominated Stephen Meir is joining us, and you do not want to miss his advice. All this coming your way in the holding room with me, Christian Abbott. Performer Stuff was created to meet the needs of folks just like you, performers, educators, and professionals in the entertainment industry. At Performer Stuff, you can search our online store for monologues and music for your next audition or to use in your classroom. On our More Good Stuff blog, you can access hundreds of articles and how-to lists created just for you by industry professionals. There are dance and voice classes and workshops at PS Academy. Plus, you can download podcasts and shows just like this one featuring performers and entertainment pros from around the world. Basically, it's an online community just for you. So check out the website at performerstuff.com or follow us on social media. Today, a powerhouse of Broadway and of the concert stage, an incredible talent who made her Broadway debut in the original cast of The First. She was also in the original Broadway cast of Nine and of Baby. She was the original Grizabella in Cats in the Los Angeles production. She has done so many things that I can't possibly list them all. She was also a Helen Hayes Award winner for her performance in Side by Side by Sondheim. I could keep going, but there are so many recordings and videos that you can find of this incredible talent that you should, after this episode, go and do just that. I am thrilled to welcome into the holding room for our Performer Spotlight segment, Kim Criswell. Kim Criswell, it is wonderful to be speaking to you today. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, you know, just waiting for the COVID to be over. I've had about enough of it. Yeah, aren't, aren't we all? We can't wait to see you back on stage and to see you in concert. So we're all hoping that it opens up real soon so we can get you back on stage and we can start cheering you on. Yeah, well, I just need a date so I know when the diet starts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ain't nobody been on a diet during COVID. <laughs> Oh, man. You know, you have accomplished so much, and I know that your experiences could really teach our audience a lot. I was wondering if you could walk us through some of your audition experiences that, you know, were successful in landing some of these huge productions that you've been a part of, or or maybe some of those not so successful auditions that you took away and you really learned something about. <laughs> oh, I can definitely do that. I'll tell you of an of a unsuccessful one, which should be a cautionary tale for your young readers, listeners. Um, <laughs> I, when I was at CCM, Cincinnati Conservatory, you know, we would all go up in a big pack and audition for Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera Chorus every summer, you know, in the hopes of getting our equity card, because that was a place at that time where you could get your equity card. And so, and it was one week stock and it was just, you know, frantic. And they hired a chorus of 12 dancers and 12 singers at that point. And so we would go up in a big pack and cram into a couple of hotel rooms, about 10 of us, <laughs> never admit how many were in there yeah. and then go to the auditions. First time I went to the audition, um, I, you know, I at CCM, I had a certain status as a person that knew she could sing. I mean, I, I was not necessarily very good at anything else, but I came in knowing how to sing and, and having confidence about that. 
So I went to this audition and everybody's, you know, pulling their stuff together. I went in and I said, I'm going to be very, I'm going to sing something very mature and finessey, you know, something, something that requires real, you know, proper musicality. So I went in to sing, now this is for a chorus. I went in and sang, why did I choose you from the yearling? A la Barbra Streisand, because that was the only recording of it that I'd heard. Really obscure song. And just, why did I choose you? Very croony. Um, kind of lovely, lots of finessey thing. At the end of it, the guy who was running it, his name was Bill Thunhurst, said, well, you know, that was pretty, but I'm not going to call you back. And I said, why? And he said, well, because I don't think your voice will carry. And he, I, he said, go down and look at that hall and see if you think your voice would carry in there. And I'm like, but I can say, no, no, that's it. That's it. So I went down and looked in that hall and went, yeah, my voice would carry in here. Um, <laughs> too late. Had to go back and hang out in the hotel room for the rest of the weekend while everybody else did all the auditions and all the callbacks. Oh, it was oh. so mortifying. So the next year, I come to this audition again. Um, I had been offered another job, a theme park job that I had, they'd been pushing and pushing and pushing me to give them a yes, because it was a solo show. And they said, okay, well, only if you'll do it. So I finally gave them a yes before I went to this audition. And so I went to the audition again, thinking, well, they're never going to hire me. They didn't even call me back, but it's good. It's good experience. So went, went in there, came in, Bill Sunhurst remembered me. He looked at me and went, I remember you from last year, but what was it all about? He said, just sing your song. So I sang Tomorrow as loud as I possibly could. And he was just a bit shell-shocked and said, what was it that I told you? And I said, you told me my voice wouldn't carry. <laughs> he said, well, you improved. <laughs> so, I mean, and then... At the end of the day, I got the job that year and had to turn it down. So, I mean, I was the world's biggest pain to this man. <laughs> I finally, wow. the next year, because I, I mean, I had to say to him once he had hired me, and I was like, um, I got a problem. I can't actually do the job. I've already taken a different job. <laughs> so yeah. the next year I came back again and auditioned again, and he did hire me, and that's how I got my equity card. All but, right. um, but I made the, a fatal mistake in a, in a chorus audition of just saying, I'm going to go in and prove, you know, I'm going to like prove that I'm mature and adult and, and do something subtle. Don't do subtle. Subtle doesn't work for a chorus call. Do, you know, give them your money notes and show them what they need for their chorus. They do not need somebody, a Barbara Streisand wannabe who's going to be crooning in the corner. <laughs> you were kind of given a gift there because some directors or casting directors wouldn't have said anything. At least, you know, he gave you a reason why you weren't being called back. So next year when they did audition, you knew what he was looking for. It could have been just as easy for him to say, next. Exactly. It, it is. So that was a gift he gave you. Absolutely. It was. And he was, he was very, he was very like that. He was very intrigued with, you know, the new ones coming up and he wanted to start people on their careers and give them their equity cards and stuff. So yeah, I was lucky there. Um, I have found, you know, over the years, now that I live in England, um, if you, you really ask, why not? Why, why'd you say no to me? Sometimes you can get an answer. In the UK, you can never get an answer. The English will not tell you. They won't. They won't. So you're just going to wonder forever because they're all too polite to ever criticize you. It and sometimes, be. you know, sometimes you'll assume you did something wrong and you didn't do anything wrong. I know that now because I direct. Mm 
sometimes somebody walks in and it's, you know, a perfect girl role, like, you know, um, like the lead girl in Carnival, for instance. She needs to be a wafy girl. If somebody comes in and they're genius, brilliant, fabulous, but they're too womanly, you're going to say no. And it's nothing they can change and it's nothing they did wrong. So now I get it. It's not always a re rejection of your talent. It's just there's right and there's wrong. There's an essence that, that people can see in you when you come in that will sometimes rule you out before you've even opened your mouth. How important was it to have that equity card before going off to New York? Oh, well, I, I certainly felt very lucky that it was achieved so easily because all the, you know, the, all of us, I think they gave nine of us from CCM our equity cards that summer. We had nine people in that course of 24. So that, you know, it was amazing because it means you can go to New York and you're, you know, nobody has an agent when they get there. Um, you go there and you, you go to equity audition, you know, just general auditions. And, you know, how do you break in? You just have to go to auditions. And if you can get to the equity ones, then it's a higher level of everything. You know, the, the non-equity stuff, sometimes you have to slog a long way through that. And also, you know, the, the required non-equity calls for equity productions are not all that fruitful most of the time. Not that many people look out that way. I don't, you know, I was lucky. I don't know how people get their equity card these days. It's, <laughs> it's just all this nonsense with weeks and this and that and the other. I mean, back then you just got an equity job and then you'd, and certain places, the, the kids in college, the smart ones would figure out which places were the ones that would hire college kids that were well-trained and give them their card. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it helps to do some of that research to hit some of those regional theaters and, and even some of those, some of those theme parks. I know uh, Walt Disney world and some of the other places they, they have equity productions in their, in their catalog of shows. So I yeah. think, I think it's incredibly beneficial to have that equity card before going to New York. Not that you can't get it when you're there, but if you can get it before you get to New York, it'll make your life a whole lot easier and help you be seen and stand out a little bit more too. Cause as you said, those non-equity calls, they're not always that fruitful. There's a lot of people showing up and it's hard to stand out in such a huge crowd. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, the other bonus out of that summer was um, I met my agent there because mm. he was Sir Dinadan in Camelot, you know, uh, and then he moved to New York a couple of years later and decided not to be an actor anymore, to be an agent. And I'm his first signed client. Well, so, um, you know, that you just never know what relationship is going to turn into what. You uh, never it's know. amazing how life works that way. Yeah. I mean, who did your college roommate go on to become? Faith Prince. Well, Hello. I think her, her <laughs> Tony winning Faith Prince. We drove each other crazy. <laughs> we were so competitive. We love each other so deeply. We love each other's families. You know, we go back to that pocket of time where you knew each other's families. You know, we'd go visiting each other's house and stuff like that. And we're still very good friends. And, um, you know, it, it, it's astonishing the people that I was in college with. The, the wonderful thing about going to CCM at that time, and probably now too, is that if you're lucky enough to get into a school like that, that is turning out a raft of graduates every year, you've got, you've got a, a bit of a social circle when you get to New York. You've already got a padded in group of people that you already know. You don't have to start from scratch like somebody who, who just came. 
You know, like when Donna McKechnie talks about her beginnings, she didn't go to a, one of those schools. She just went to New York. It's so much harder if you don't know anybody, because how do you think the information gets passed around on, you know, who's looking for what and who's doing a workshop and hang on a minute, come on down here and do this. You know, I'm, I, this once happened to me. I was, uh, my friend George Dvorsky was doing a recording of something for Mitch Lee, the guy who wrote um, um, Man of La Mancha for a new musical. And he said, "Ah, oh, Kimmy, what are you doing? Come on down here, because uh, you know there was a girl here. She was, and, and he didn't, he didn't like her, and so he got rid of her. But now they don't have a woman to sing this stuff. So I just ran down there and recorded all this stuff. <laughs> so, you know, did it turn into anything great? No, but but um, it's because of who you know. Yeah, it, you know, having that friend circle there makes a huge difference in the business. Yeah. So let's go to maybe an auditioned." that you really had to slug it out for. I mean, you told me that getting Grizabella and Cats wasn't the easiest thing and it took you about two years to land that role. Yeah, this one, that one was a slog. Um, I was in the chorus of nine at the time and uh, was everybody and their mother wanted to, you know, be Grizabella and Cats. It was the new big thing. Nobody'd seen it. It was just on in London. And so I did the research I like got a copy of the British cast album and listened to it all and looked at the pictures and studied it intently. And I said, you know, I know I'm too young probably, but who can tell under all that cat fur? You can't tell how old anybody is or, or what they look like really. So I said, well, I want that part. I had no business doing that from my position in the chorus of nine. <laughs> I had no position, no business saying that. But I went to the audition and I out-clevered myself to death with my audition song because um, I always take great pride in picking just the right song. Well, get this. I found a song that was a Harold Arlen song, very bluesy, lonely, kind of nighttime-y, you know, that kind of an essence song okay. um, from a musical called Gay Per E, which was an animated film and all the characters were cats. <laughs> and the cat that sang this song was Judy Garland. <laughs> Nobody knew this song. <laughs> I'm pretty good at this stuff and I don't know that. Yeah, that's... I've never seen Gay Purry, but that's wow. what it's from. Um, so I went in and I sang this thinking, oh, they're gonna totally get this. Nope, <laughs> right over their heads. None of them had ever heard of it. <laughs> I could have sung anything, um, but they kept calling me back. Um, they had decided, I mean, it was the originals. It was, it was the original Broadway company. So it was, you know, Trevor Nunn and Jillian Lynn and Andrew, and, and they were all sitting out there and, um, and Vinnie Liff, my favorite casting director friend. And so anyway, they kept calling me back and they kept calling me back for the role of the Gumby cat, which, you know, tap dancing cat. So I said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll go. I mean, I had studied tap. I, I do tap. But then I went off to, and took like a million tap lessons at the old Henry Latang studio, which was the place to study tap 80s. Um, and just cram, 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 crammed all this tap. So kind of fifth or sixth audition, I went in and they had a Gumby Cat final. And I remember there were six of us. And we all had to do this little routine and where I realized I was hugely overqualified because Jillian Lynn was a wonderful, wonderful dancer and choreographer, but she wasn't a tapper. So the tap was simple. It was all like military time step cramp rolls. That's it. <laughs> there was not much to it and stomping around and shaking your finger. That's, there wasn't much to it. So I didn't have any trouble with the tap. Um, at, after that audition, the stage manager who was running things was a pal. And he called me up and said, well, Kimmy, you're your first choice for the Gumby Cat at this point. And I was like, 
oh, I don't really want that to be the case. So I went in and did something incredibly risky. And, you know, well done them for letting me. I went in the next time I went in and they said, well, yes, we just thought we'd have you in to sing again. And I said, now, here's the thing. And whenever I said, here's the thing, um, Vinny Liff would just crawl under his chair because he'd know I was going to do something that he did not sanction. <laughs> so I said, now, here's the thing. I know you're thinking of me for the Gumby Cat. I said, but honestly, that's not really what I do. I said, um, I think I, I said that you can probably find somebody that that's really more what they do. I said, what I do is sing, and I sing things like memory. I said, now I know that you're looking at me and I'm maybe too young. And I said, under the costume, who's going to know? I said, can I sing memory for you? You're going to need an understudy. And so they said, yeah, yeah, sing the song. So I sang the song. And from then on, I was up for that. Wow. I didn't get it. Obviously, Betty Buckley got it, but I didn't realize I was either second or third choice. I didn't know how close I got until later. So, you know, life goes on. I got a lovely handwritten letter delivered to my door from Trevor Nunn, which I think he did a handful of these to people who ended up not getting cast, but he really made an impression on him, mm. which I thought that was the most gentlemanly thing I'd ever seen in my life because it was a very encouraging letter. And um, so I... Oh, there was another funny part too. At one point we had to do a monologue and I'm like, monologue. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, he's a Royal Shakespeare company. Director. Yeah, that's true. My agent says, well, why don't you do a Shakespearean monologue? And I went, are you out of your mind? I'm not doing Shakespeare for You've Trevor. Seen the Nunn. best and the best in the world do that. <laughs> I like, know. So I had this monologue that I'd done in a in an original musical, which was just a truck stop waitress just blathering on about nothing. But he, I knew he'd never heard it. <laughs> so I did that, and he's like, "What is that?" <laughs> anyway, that was my monologue. Anyway, it didn't stop me. That's good. Um, so cut to the chase. I didn't get the job. I stayed in nine for a while. Then I went through various other things. And then after a year, they were sniffing around me again because Betty was not necessarily going to re-sign her contract. They didn't know it was up in the air. And all of a sudden they're sniffing around me again. Also a tour was going out. Mm. In the end, I did baby instead. Um, so the next time up was the LA company. And for the LA company, they had said initially, well, she'll have to fly to LA. We're going to cast it out there. And I was like, I'm not flying to L.A. You know, no, if they want me, I live in New York. So they went to L.A. They didn't find who they wanted. They came back. They had an audition that was supposed to be three people or four people. And it only ended up being three. It was Florence Lacey, me and Karen Akers, who was a really good friend of mine from nine. But the song was out of her was was too high for her. It was just not in her range. And um, I went last and I went in and it was only Andrew Lloyd Webber sitting there. And, um, it, it, you know, Trevor and Jillian. Only, only Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's just Andrew. There. Yeah, just him. The Lord, <laughs> Lord, Lord. Lord. <laughs> yeah. and, and I went in and I said, well, because I'd heard them both singing memory through the door. Hmm. And I went in and said, well, and, and also the, the general managers were there. Um, who was, uh, the the uh, man was a friend of mine, too. So it was just the two of them. And I walked in and said, well, I guess I know what you want to hear. And he said, no, no, don't sing that. I'm tired of that. I went. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I said, no, no, sing something else. So I said, okay. So I sang tomorrow, which was my go-to song. And I sang that. And he said, okay, do you have something else? Something more, you know, more sensitive and more 
you're vulnerable and da, 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 da. I said, you mean like memory? He said, no, no, I don't want to hear that. I said, okay. So I sang in a very unusual way, which I had done in nine. And he um, said, you know, I finished singing that. And, you know, he, he stopped me once and said, now, now do it as if you're pain and you're at the end of your life. And I'm like, okay, Grisabella sings unusual way. Okay. So I did that. And at the end of it, he said, well, I, well, we want you to do it. Right I was there. like, what? Really? Just like that? After like two years? <laughs> and Tyler Gatchel, who was Gatchel and Newfeld were the general managers. And Tyler just looked at him like, I've never heard him do that before. But he said, yeah, we, I, I, it obviously had been pre-decided that unless I had grown another head or couldn't sing anymore, that right. they had all agreed that, yeah, she could, she could be our choice. So that's how it got offered to me. I mean, wow. I knew on the spot. I went out and I called my agent and I said, well, he offered it to me. He was like, what? <laughs> so anyway, and that led to a year and a half doing Cats in L.A. Wow. But it took, you know, wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had the nerve to say, I'm going to gamble. Yeah. I'm going to gamble. I'm going to ask them if I can sing the song. And by doing that, I lost the Gumby Cat job. But I didn't care about that because I didn't want to be the Gumby Cat. That wasn't <laughs> where I saw myself. That, but that is, I mean, you were in an amazing situation where you were already in a show. You were already working on Broadway in nine and refusing, turning down a role um, was a little bit easier for you to do because you, you were earning a living, you know. Um, yeah. But that's, that's still risky. I mean, that, I, 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 I admire that so much, but I don't know if I could wholeheartedly give that advice to a performer hitting pounding the pavement. I mean, that level of confidence is, is admirable, but I never had that. I, I don't think I would ever have done that. Well, honestly, I've done it sometimes where it didn't work and I've done it sometimes where it did. Hmm. And I never regret it in my case because I know what I do. And, and I, don't, I don't expect them to know what I do and what's, what my insides are based on a five-minute meeting. Um, the best way to show it is to show it, to show them. And if they, if they give you, if they allow you the opportunity to show them what you would do with something, then um, sometimes you can change their mind. Yeah. In this case, I managed to change their mind. Um, a lot of the time they won't even see you for something because they're so sure you're wrong. And then you might be able to change their mind if you could get in the room. So um, I tend to try to be when I'm casting something or directing something to be more open-minded mm. um, and say, no, if that person feels strongly about it, let's see what they got. You know, they may not understand it at all, or they may know something that I can't see about themselves. That's, that's an interesting point. They may know something that I can't see about myself. Sometimes we're in denial about, what we can actually accomplish and somebody, a casting director, directors, choreographers, they can, they can see your true self and your true ability where you may have blinders on. So sometimes it's hard to hold up that mirror and say, well, maybe I need to work on that. <laughs> well, and sometimes, you know, you have your own denial about things like for most of my career, I've always been a good 10 or 15 pounds over the weight of everybody else of, you know, uh, so I I'll like pick out a role that I, that physically I'm not their idea of right for it. And I almost always get slapped down on that. And honestly, I, you know, as a person who now sits on the other side of the table, I can see it. They don't think, well, we could probably get her to lose 20 pounds. They don't do that. 
they they just go, no, she's not right. She's not physically right. Um, and, you know, you have to be realistic about yourself. If you want to be a different type, you need to change your physicality to be that type. Um, and a lot of the time it is in your control to, to make the changes that would maybe push you in the right direction in that direction that you want to go. Yeah. So there's no hope for me playing Tony in Greece with this bald head. I just don't, don't have that. Goal. <laughs> and as long as there are wigs, honey, <laughs> yeah. 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 we we can all play everything with wigs. I think it's I think it's fascinating, and maybe there is a philosophy or a thought process behind it. And if there is, I would love to hear it. That you know your your audition song is tomorrow. What is it about that song that you take and you sang for the first? You sang for uh, cats. I mean people spend like a lot of anxiety picking and choosing different songs for different auditions, but you got a lot of success using that same song over and over again. Honestly, you know, I thought I was singing it just like it's sung in the show. I thought Fanny, but I wasn't, I had, I mean, now that I listen back to it, I go, Oh, it, it did sort of morph into my version somewhere along the way. And my version was, you know, if you're going to sing a song that is, very well known and has been sung by a lot of great people like Andrew McArdle, for instance, um, you need to make it your own in a way that makes your version of it memorable. Mm. So I guess I did that. I didn't know I was doing it, but I, I guess I did that. And it's still a go-to song for me for just fun, you know, because it, it's a great song. It's a great, it, you know, it, it's one of those great songs. And honestly, there's only so much you can do with impressing people with your wonderfulness as a performer. If you're singing a mediocre song, mm. you're always better off picking a great song. Kim, I can't thank you enough for your time and for sharing your experiences and your advice. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank, thank you so very much. But I'm not quite done with you yet. If you're game, I'd like to bring okay. you back for our lightning round. Okay. All right. <laughs> Kim Criswell, are you ready for our lightning round? Yes, I'm geared up. All right, here we go. 15 questions. We're gonna see how fast we can get through these. First question. First Broadway soundtrack you ever obsessed over? Funny Girl. Go-to song when singing in the shower? This is a strange one. The overture, when I'm singing in the shower, I'm warming up for a performance. Okay. That's the only time I ever do it. The overture from nine, all four parts. Best warm up I know. Wow. Every single part. And once you've sung all four parts a couple of times, you are as warm as you need to be. That's great. <laughs> Cake or pie? Cake. So you wish you could go back in time to be in? I want to go back to Ethel Merman days and give her a run for her money. Oh. Um, it, I don't know if you remember a show called Dewberry Was a Lady. Yes. I'd like a crack at that one. I've done uh -oh. it before. I'd love to do the show. Um, who is someone that if they punched you in the face, you would not be mad? Julie Andrews, because she is a goddess. <laughs> if you could do one show for the next five years, what would it be? Oh, that is hard. Gypsy. It would kill me, but gypsy. Say good day, mate, in an Australian accent. Good day, mate. Perfect. Stephen Sondheim is doing a new musical about your favorite childhood toy. What is it? It is a much the worse for wear stuffed pink French poodle called Pierre with a broken neck and a bad case of the mange. 
<laughs> oh, he could do some dark songs with that. <laughs> I know. He's been Pierce had a rough life. It would be a dark show. <laughs> South Pacific or Oklahoma? South Pacific. Because of the because it's about something. Love important. it. Important. Sour Patch Kids or Swedish Fish? Would you believe I've never had either one? Yes, I would. I've interviewed several people who live over in London and they're like, we, I don't know what you're talking about. I so, would do Haribo Sours, which is the English version of the same kind of thing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which animal adds more joy to the world, squirrels or llamas? Squirrels, because even the way you say their name in England, squirrel. <laughs> it's amusing. They're amusing. <laughs> Go-to cast album when on a road trip. Gosh, anything Bill Finn. Um, uh, falsettos. Falsettos. Oh, nice. Um, duet you enjoy singing both parts to? Who Will Love Me As I Am? Sideshow. <laughs> I've recorded that one. <laughs> All right. Next superhero to have a Broadway musical. Oh, you know, I, I hope it's Catwoman. She's not technically a superhero, but she's no, in that world. No, you know, I'll absolutely give <laughs> you she Catwoman. She's got a story to tell. Yeah. I, I think she's intriguing. Why do they all have to be men? <laughs> all right. So, Kim, you're directing a show. I show up for the audition. You haven't seen me dance, sing, or act. What do you immediately typecast me as when I walk in the room? Well, I do know that you're a dancer, I would I would cast you as the captain in Dames at Sea. I would do that. That would be. I would do that. That would be great. Here's the other one. Oh, you froze there. You have very and you're not old enough yet, but you you have very kind eyes. Am I unfrozen yet? Yep. No. No. Go again. Yeah. There you go. You have very kind eyes, and you're not old enough yet. But in ten, fifteen years, you could be an Arvide in. to sing more, I cannot wish you, in Guys and Dolls. That would be fun. Yeah, that would be great. One of the greatest uh, dance breaks ever in musical theater is, you know, the the sure the, the crap, crap shoot. shoot well. yeah. yeah, and so just to be a part of that production, I will take yeah. that. I mean, I as Arvide, you would just have to be kind of the heart yeah. behind behind Sarah. Yeah, that's great. And I think you could do that. Arvide. All right. Kim, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for, thanks for going to the lightning round, but thanks for sharing your experience and your advice with us. I know our audience can really benefit from heeding your advice and listening to your stories and congratulations. And, I, and again, we can't wait for the world to open back up again and see you back on stage at some of your concerts. And, you know, right now we'll have to settle for listening to your albums you know, all 40 of them or so. and Something just... like that. I, I can't count. Well, because they keep repackaging things and saying, oh, it's a new album with this track that's been on four other albums. I mean, who can keep count of that? But I really appreciate your time today. So let us know when you're back up on stage so we can go and we can, we can cheer you on. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Christian. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you have a huge audition coming up, and you don't want to search through the same old monologue books, check out performerstuff.com. Our custom search feature lets you narrow down exactly what you're looking for, get a quick preview of the monologue, then print it out. Plus, lots of materials come straight from the playwright, so you won't walk in with the same monologue as everyone else. It's the easiest way to get your audition or classroom monologues. Search, preview, print at performerstuff.com.
Well, there you go. The incredible Kim Criswell. I am so grateful that she was able to join us this week for our Performer Spotlight. If you didn't see last week's episode, make sure you go back and see her in Professor's Corner. Some amazing stories. And I don't know if I could ever be so bold to make those choices that she did, but it certainly paid off because she landed some incredible roles and has had an amazing career. So Kim, thank you so much for joining us in our Performer Spotlight segment. In the next five minutes, I am going to attempt to teach you how to memorize a deck of cards at a single glance because it does some really cool things. First of all, it keeps your mind sharp. Some people do crosswords. Some people do Sudoku. I, I go through a deck of cards. I memorize it in a single glance and I recite it back. It does keep your mind sharp. And if you want to pursue a career in theater, memorizing all those scripts and everything you have to know to pull off a performance You have to keep your mind sharp, and this will do this. It will also do three other really cool things that will help you in your performance career, but let's get started because I only have a few minutes left. First of all, associate every card with something familiar to you, whatever it may be. I'll give you an example. All of the aces for me are Broadway composers, obviously. All of the kings are stand-up comedians. All of the queens are Disney princesses. All of the jacks are, they're famous jacks, actually. Jack Hanna, Jack Skellington, Jack Nicholas, whatever. Those things mean something to me. Uh, Threes are famous painters. Uh, uh, Fours are uh, rock bands. Fives are superheroes. Whatever it is, whatever you think of, when you see that number, whatever you think of, Create something about that, you know, that suit, heart, diamond, club, spade, create something. What does it make you think of? Associate each card with something that means something to you. Now, nobody is in your mind. Nobody's in your mind. Nobody is judging you. Don't be afraid of being absurd and ridiculous. The more ridiculous, the more absurd, the more chance it's going to stay in your brain. So write that down. Ace of spades equals, ace of hearts equals, ace of clubs equals, and so on, all the way down to the list. Practice this list, go over this list, remember, memorize this list. Now, that's not enough because a deck of cards is shuffled, right? So now you have to find a place that you know so intimately that you can walk around just by closing your eyes and thinking about that place. And you gotta find 52 places in that space. It's not as hard as you think it is, you know, so go to your childhood home or your school or your work. For me, I use a golf course that I visit regularly, the tee box, the 150 marker and the green on all 18 holes provides enough space for me to put 52 decks of cards, 52 things. So find that place, find 52 places. So if you have 10 rooms, you only need about five places in each room or vice versa. If you have five rooms, you only need 10 spaces in each room. And it's, it's not that hard. Now walk around and put those famous people or things in those locations. So for example, if I go to my golf course on the tee box, you know, it's an ace of spades. I put Stephen Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim is my ace of spades and he is teeing off and it's a windy day and it's, you know, blowing in his hair. Then at the 150 marker, you know, maybe it's a, a king of clubs. That's George Carlin. You know, George Carlin is a stand-up comedian. He hit a lot of the nightclubs in the 50s and 60s. 
I love him. You don't know him, but you don't need to because it needs to mean something to me, not you. So George Carlin is at the 150 marker and maybe he is breaking a club over his leg. Uh, then at the hole, maybe it's a, a, a queen of diamonds. Queen of diamonds for me is Jasmine, Princess Jasmine from Aladdin, because she's got that little gem in her headband. And maybe she's flying around the hole on her magic carpet, right? So when I go back through the deck and I go, who's that hole one? Oh, Stephen Sondheim with his hair blowing in the wind. Then it's George Carlin breaking a club. And then Princess Jasmine is flying over the hole. Those things are so ridiculous and so absurd that they stay in my mind. And your memory is location-based. Never forget that. That's why you always retrace your steps when you forget something. Where was I? Because your memory is location-based. Now, this teaches you Imagination, association, and location. So you can use those things to your advantage in the future. Some of the greatest comedians, the greatest actors, and the greatest improvisational performers are amazing at association. Yeah? Associating that with that, putting together a scene on the spot, and going with it. Using that creativity to put those famous people who represent cards into ridiculous scenarios increases your creativity and your ability to do it faster. And you want to have those creative thoughts, those imaginative thoughts in a moment to be able to do that and come up with new scenarios, new things, new situations. And of course, your memory is location-based. So when you're memorizing speeches, monologues, scripts, where are you? Put yourself somewhere. Because if you can do that, then things will come easier because your memory is location-based. Association, location, and imagination. Three essential things you need to have as a performer and to memorize a deck of cards. Memorizing a deck of cards is pretty silly, but it's pretty cool and pretty fun. Thank you, Five. If you need music for an audition or a voice lesson, Performer Stuff's got you covered. PerformerStuff.com offers not only full music sheets, but also 32-bar and 16-bar cuts, pre-selected by our on-staff music directors with an intro and easy-to-read sheet for your accompanist. If you need some help practicing, you can download an audition bundle with the sheet music, a vocal lead, and practice track. Plus, the audio on the track matches the sheet music, so you can walk into your audition knowing exactly what to expect. As always, our search feature makes it easy for you to find what you're looking for. So when you need music, come check us out at performerstaff.com. In Professor's Corner this week, somebody who makes me still want to be a professional dancer because I would love to work for this gentleman. He has choreographed all over the United States, all over Europe, including West End and on Broadway. He has been nominated for the Olivier Award seven times and won it three times. He was nominated for a Tony Award. He choreographed such shows as Sunset Boulevard, Mary Poppins, Little Mermaid, 42nd Street, Singing in the Rain, Gypsy, just to name a few. Please welcome to our Professor's Corner, Stephen Meir. When those performers get to the rehearsal process, uh, Claire House was on and she talked about you and some of the inspiration that you provided her um, when you were creating that rehearsal space. And she said that a big piece, of, big piece of advice she got from you 
was the rehearsal space is a safe space. Go for it. Be bold. Make choices. You and know. also make mistakes. That's make where you can do. Make your mistakes there. We do it as creatives when you're doing a new show. You know, we set things and then we go, oh, oh no, that's terrible. Just swap it around and then, you know, that's what we're there for. And I think it should be a safe place for people to say that. I always say to people, I will never make you look stupid. Hmm. Yeah. So, it, When the dancers come in, uh, performers are coming in to, to the rehearsal process. Is there something that you want them to be aware of? I mean, you've kind of mentioned professionalism and, and likability, but is there yeah. in the rehearsal process, is there something that just, uh-uh, we're not going to do that. Stop it right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, once again, I'm so into as a director and choreographer, knowing the period of the piece hmm. and how people moved in those days, watch films of that period. We move very differently <coughs> style sorry the style is very different now to what was then and you know some people don't think about that the way people walk with the girdles pull women up all those things i take into consideration when we're doing a show that you have to and i think that's so important and don't just try and be flicking your fingers and <laughs> doing that in a, an old 1930s show or you know just you just be aware because i'm it's, i sometimes watch shows and i think they just don't look like they belonged in that time. But, you know, hey-ho, that's, but that's part of rehearsal. And also, know your lines in a rehearsal room. That's very frustrating. I mean, I always set a date that we're all off the script. Um, but a lot of people that work for me now are normally, you know, only the first few days stay on the script just to write blocking down. Yeah. Yeah, the rehearsals don't end just because you've been excused for the day. You got to go home. You got to write it all down. You got to digest it. You got to review your script and go over your notes and come in ready to move forward the next day. Uh, I have often heard directors and choreographers, you know, vent their frustration about having to go back and repeat something because there's just there's just too much to do in too short a time. It's like understudies as well. They should sit and watch and write everything down. Don't just get up, well, I haven't had a rehearsal. You've been sitting in a room watching. If you had any sense, you will write the blocking down. Yeah. Well, most people do that I work with, but you know, I've, I've come across people that say, well, I have not had any rehearsal or I don't know what they do. And I thought, you've been sitting in a room. <laughs> Can you take us back to an audition that maybe wasn't successful? And if there was a reason why or what you learned or took away from that experience? Well, I'm obsessed with Ann Miller. And I, she was doing Sugar Babes, and I had to audition. I, the, it said, it even said the boys had to be six foot and over. I'm five foot seven and a head push at an audition. And um, I remember going, and because, once again, the MD really liked me and knew I, I was desperate to work with Ann Miller, um, they kept me right to the end. And when I just remember going on for the last line up and it went literally across and then this big drop and I was there so I knew I was going to go but that was a bit disheartening but my other one was singing in the rain with Tommy Steele it was a big tap show I'd done Ford Secretary and I was a tapper that was my main thing so I was desperate to do uh singing in the rain and I got right down and they wanted somebody older which I mean would be fine now but and I remember coming away and I was literally in tears walking down the road because they kept me to the end as well. It's not like I'd, I'd got younger during the audition. They could have, you know, but it, they, I was there all day and then it just came down to two and we were like chalk and cheese. So um, that was that was a bit disheartening. Yeah, and, but 
And that's what's frustrating, I think, or scary about the the industry is you don't always know why you weren't cast, yeah. you know, and so you take it personally. And we've right. heard examples on this show of, you know, people not getting a job because, you know, like you said, they wanted somebody older. There's nothing you can do about that. We had okay. one, we had uh, Nikki Snelson when she was on, she said that she reminded the director of his ex-wife and she, and he didn't want to look at that every night, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> you know? So uh, is there, you know, you have cast and hired, you know, loads of people in your career, yeah. you know, and I, I know that sometimes you'd want to wish like, oh, it wasn't because of your talent. It was because of X, Y, Z. Is there any advice you can give to that young performer so they don't take it to heart? I mean, or if it's ensemble, listen, I've lost some of my best dancers because they couldn't understudy. They weren't right for an understudy. So you have to take that into consideration. Right. The main thing about auditions, like I said, can't stress this. Just go in there, do the best you can and come out thinking, oh, you know what? I really did the best I did, could, but don't dwell on it because if you dwell on it, it'll affect your next audition and, you know, take those things into consideration. The height, they, they, everybody has to understudy something now. So I do lose a lot of people that I would kill to have in, in there sometimes. In this day and age, we are looking at ourselves as individuals and we are being proud of who we are as individuals. Uh, I have seen performers come to auditions and to me personally, it looks like they just rolled out of bed. They haven't done their hair or maybe they have tattoos that <clears throat> are fine, but they wouldn't be appropriate for the show. And I just wonder why, why did you wear that? Or why didn't you do that? But you don't want to, you, want, you don't want to mark anybody against for being who they are, but where, where do you stand on somebody being the individual artist that they are and also representing themselves the best they can for the show that they're auditioning for? Yeah, I mean, if you've got any sense and you find out the period, you don't wear your baggy trousers and your cap on and do all your commercial look for a theatre job. And same with like when I auditioned, um, when, when I choreographed Crazy, the girls, if girls came in in traps, I'd, I'd say they need to come off. I need to see legs. I need to see what it look like. You know, you should be a, your showgirls. Don't wear the little heels. Wear he heels, you know. Have the common sense. You know, when you audition for Poppins, you can wear your little heels because that's chimney sweeps tapping. Just using your common sense, I think. And I just think to go in looking rough in an audition is unacceptable anyway. Yeah. I think in America, at least, the... I don't want to speak for all college university teachers, but there is a line that they can't cross when criticizing their students in the musical theater or dance programs. They can't always be 100% honest because of the offense that they might take and how it could hurt them. But I'm thinking your job is to get them ready for this career. And when they walk into an agent, they walk into a casting director, the casting director is gonna say, unfortunately, lose 15 pounds and fix your teeth. Yeah, but I don't think they can say that now. I mean, no. the world's gone mad. The world yeah. has gone mad. I mean, I that, that's why I wouldn't want to teach in a college. I go and do workshops so I can say what I like. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I do feel sorry for teachers because I was run through the mill by some of mine who loved me, but they made me so good because they pushed me beyond, I mean, times I wanted to cry, but they pushed me. I remember being at a bally bar after coming back from pantomime, and it was my very, very first job, coming back from pantomime and 
Bridget Espinosa passed me a little note and I put it in there and I'm thinking, it's perhaps welcome back, Simon, a week late. It was a diet sheet. <laughs> I was mortified. But it made me get my act together. And but so now it's hard. I mean, there's a thing now in colleges where they can they judge their teachers, tell them what they like about the teachers. I'm like, are you serious? Yeah. That yeah. I, I'm just I'm blown away by that. You know, we're there to help you and make you what happens. It's a tough business. You need to have, you know, teachers are there to help you and keep a good reputation for the college. It's such a shame. Sometimes yeah. it has gone politically mad sometimes, I think. Yeah. And then I think yeah. it's it's such a rude awakening for those students when they start pounding the pavement and going to agencies and being seen by casting directors. And they're like, wait, my teacher never told me any of this. It's such a disservice when you, when you think about how much it costs to go to college. And (laughs) if you could give a piece of advice to the college student coming right into their beginning of their professional career, what advice would you give them? Always be polite to everybody you work with. Just be nice because it really is a main thing of your career. You Honestly, I, I didn't realise until I saw how people behaved and then they didn't get jobs that I learned that. And thank God I was never like that. But also, don't let anybody tell you you can't achieve anything. I was told I couldn't I wouldn't go to London to train. I was at Airy Fairyland. I was dyslexic and my teacher told me, you're just thick. You know, we didn't know I was dyslexic till late. So that made me more ambitious to go to college to prove him wrong. Um, but don't ever let anybody tell you you can't achieve anything. Because if somebody told little gay Stephen at three that I would achieve what I've achieved now, I would laugh in your face. I mean, when I got into 42nd Street, which was my second West End show, as the curtain went up, I remember my eyes were just full of tears because I thought, I've made it. This I am at the top of my career and ensemble in 46th Street at Drury Lane. And then I never, ever would have imagined what happened after that. Yeah. Stephen, I can't thank you enough for your time and your, your insight. Uh, I wish you all the best. I can't wait for the world to open back up so we can see your oh. work on stage again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Join me, Mark Pawsey, your host for Pro Series on PerformerStuff.com with friends and colleagues from the entertainment world whom I've had the pleasure to work alongside during my illustrious show business career. Together in conversation, we share our knowledge, experiences, wisdom and passion for the arts. From Broadway and the West End to theme parks, cruise ships and everything in between, Pro Series will bring you tips on how we succeeded in this industry that we love and respect. Pro Series. Conversations with the pros brought to you by performerstuff.com. The incredible Stephen Muir, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. He is going to be back in a future episode in our Performer Spotlight segment because he had an amazing career as a professional dancer on stage with a, a lot of original casts under his belt. So hope you enjoyed that conversation. Hope you took some notes, some great wisdom there if you're ever going to dance for the guy and you might dance for that guy. I hope you do anyway. Next week's episode is going to feature a friend, Daniel. He has performed all over the world, literally. I don't think he's performed in the United States in 20 years. So he's going to be talking about living and working abroad, which is a great opportunity for you to see the world on someone else's dime and for you to stay in your craft. So join myself and Daniel next week in the holding room. Thank you very much. (laughs) 